Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This was my first baby on my own. So I had to learn about all the subcontractors, learn about how to communicate through City Hall to get permits. Because, you know, this is a new thing for some contractors to build something so grand and big. That's Michael Ledesma, journeyman chef, on his two-decade vision quest that took him from the brokerage industry to the Hawaii culinary scene, West Virginia and RVA Dine. Now, his very own ambitious restaurant, Perch, is smashing the ratings. He tells us how he did it. Stay with us. Mark your calendars. March 12th at the University of Richmond's Modlin Center. Full Disclosure presents 2024 sites. Amy Walter of The Takeaway and Cook Political Report. Aisha Roscoe of NPR Politics and VPM's own Ben Pavier on all things election 2020. Tickets up soon at vpm.org slash events. Mark your calendars and get a sitter for March 12th. Joining me in studio in downtown RVA, what do they call it here? The Arts District, the Theater District. I don't, I don't know what the kids are calling it lately. But nevertheless, Michael Ledesma, chef and owner of Perch, a Pacific Rim-inspired, Virginia-spirited restaurant in Richmond, built in the ruins of a 50-year Chinese restaurant. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Robin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing it on short notice. Your past restaurant lives include stints at Heart Shell, East Coast Provisions, The Daily, Max is on Broad. An apprenticeship at the Greenbrier in West Virginia, and uh, in a past life, you were in the financial services industry uh, at the turn of the century at Merrill Lynch. At Merrill Lynch. Uh, started with Alex Brown. Then Alex Brown got bought out by Bankers Trust, and Bankers Trust got bought out by Deutsche Bank. And so I worked for three banks in five years, and then moved to Merrill Lynch to the, to the sell side. So you were you were like a a, a sell side stock jockey, uh, pretty much. I, I mean, were no, you a financial advisor? Financial advisor had my Series Six, Seven, all the all the cert- certifications. It was it was a good it was a good time. The high flying uh, dot coms, I remember. So what happened in in two thousand that convinced you to, to tell me? I mean, you got poached or you, uh, you wanted to leave Baltimore? What was going on? I, I had an interview at on Wall Street. Got a job offer at Prudential, and at a certain point. I was sitting in at my in my cubicle and I was looking at the people and and the and just like the environment got me thinking do I want to work 20 years or 30 years with these gentlemen to the left and right and I kind of said no. In shorter of breath and someday closer to death as Pink Floyd once put it. That's correct. I was uh I had I had a, a breaking point and a tipping point and you know I had the nice car, I had the the nice house and I was just like all right, let's see what happens. You want a revelation? I too was a sell side. Yeah, uh, I was a, a, a Wall Street monkey and wanted to leave in two thousand. I looked to my left. I looked to my right. I say, I see these people. I can be. I can be like six divorces in, twenty <laughs> years in, and have a prostate the size of a grapefruit. Yeah, and be rich, but uh, I'll never know my family. And I had to walk away from that and go into journalism. Yeah, I think uh, at a certain point in your career, you have to make a, a a hard decision and a true look in the mirror, and really enjoy life. And how do you do that? You have to take a you have to take chances and you have to listen to people that are older and have more experience. So I had a, this client, his name is Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith, you have so much money. How do I get there? He goes, Michael, I never worked a day in my life. And I said, what does that mean? What does that mean? So you have to find your passion and you, know, you really have to soul search every day. Do you know what I've transubstantiated that into? Is It's a great saying because I've made many transitions, including leaving the fast lane in New York to come to, to Virginia and, and reinvent is, I tell people, especially younger people who are kind of at that entrepreneurs or innovators dilemma, listen, 
you can either take your anxiety and uncertainty in a lump sum payment that'll last one, two, or three years, or you can amortize it over 25 years at a job that you hate. How's that? That's pretty deep. That's pretty strong. I should get paid for that, you, you right? Should. It should be on a poster. You should have a book. <laughs> <laughs> it should be on a poster on a magazine inside a plane or something. It, it should be. It's a, it's catchy and it's easy. To... So this vision quest in uh, 2000 was you decided to leave the East Coast to go to Hawaii. Is Hawaii. that true? Yep. Hawaii. Did you say I'm going to go to what? Ski bump? What was the idea? I'm going to go surf, figure it out, wipe out. You know, I've always wanted to surf the big waves and... Did you have any job down there? You just took no. your savings and said, "I just uh, called a headhunter and hey, hooked hook me up with some interviews and got on a plane and so I flew in on a f- Thursday, played for the weekend, had a job interview Monday, got hired on Tuesday. Got hired at what in Hawaii? I was a bank consultant and then a, a, like a portfolio manager, helping assisting a, a group equity. Again, so that's just buying time and buying you time in Hawaii to surf. Yep, so the markets go by the New York time, so you're in at three. Four and out by one, 12. When did the culinary bug sting you? We've asked people before, you know, we've, we've had various chefs on the show, and then it's an enormous leap of faith. It is a, it's a leap of faith. And when I was in high school, I, I was on a, I worked on a charter boat in the hospitality side of it. I was a bartender, a first mate, I, I did the catering. So on a boat, you and the captain, and, and you have the first mate, and you know, a couple support people. And that, that really was a happy place for me. And so I kind of like went back to my happy, happy place. When did I learn my first sauce? Oh, the, the Alfredo sauce. I was like, oh, cool. What's my favorite, you know, what was my favorite thing growing up? Working on the boats. And so at that point, you're stuck with 12, 15 people for three hours and you have to entertain them. And that was, that was kind of fun. Did you have academic debt? I did. But, it, you know, it's... And in my case, it's the immigrant parents saying, what are you doing? Yeah. You're killing oh, your they, mom. They were so upset when I left. They're like, mm. you're the dumbest. That's the dumbest thing you ever did. <laughs> I was like, nah. <laughs> you and Hawaii is not cheap. Hawaii is not cheap. It was uh, a struggle. But luckily, I had I got good grades. Ended up, you know, dean's list, get a lot of grants. You're talking about culinary school. Culinary school. So wait, you didn't fill that in. You went to culinary school in Hawaii? Went to culinary school in Hawaii. So this bank assistant thing was just the means to an end? Yeah, it was just like, okay, quit that, go full-time in school, bang it out in a year and a half because I had all the all the other requirements. I just had to take the uh, level twos and level you know, three, fours. That's crazy. Yeah. The financial risk is kind of mitigated. You said I could get a job, what, as a sous chef or I could do something afterwards? No, I just... Went in as a, you know, there's only a few nice restaurants in Hawaii, and I went in, and can I wash dishes? They're like, yeah. And then I, can I do the garmage and work salad station? Seven bucks an hour? And I was like, you're crazy. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So I started from the bottom. How did you keep your cost basis on everything low? Where did you live? What did you do? What did you eat? Ramen noodles? Uh, ramen noodles, uh, you know, culinary school, you eat all the time. Uh-huh. I, was, I just got married, my first marriage. And she was she was a consultant, so she she helped me through that that whole the whole transition. And she's like, "Are you gonna be top chef?" <laughs> like, uh, not really. It's not gonna. It's not that fast. And I really immerse. You know, that's immersion of food. It's kind of addicting. Like, who am I gonna work with next? Who? Which which chef in in Hawaii? Roy Yamaguchi, Alan Wong, Chef Mavro. Which 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 resort am I gonna go to? 
Mandarin Oriental, Manelli Bay, Koali Lodge. So it's that much of a hirer's market that you could take your... You could go wherever. It was because, really portable alpha. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's a vacation spot, lots of tourism, lots of... There's not that many people that want to cook. I mean, there's a lot of people that want to cook, but that, that aren't very good. So there's a lot of market for that. And then when I was, uh, you know, transitioning, it was, it was like, all right, so how do I get better than everyone else at the fastest? Work with the best. So amid that hustle, was there a point where you realized maybe in some kitchen or working on some dish that you revisited that kind of whimsy of your youth when you were on that charter boat? Like, yes, this this risk is starting to pay off. I can see it paying off. I can see it paying it off. You you know, when you start culinary school, you have these aspirations to open a restaurant right away as fast as possible. You're like, I'm going to learn. And then the risk is you don't know the, all the answers. And and at a certain point, it's then that financial side just kicks in. You're like, ah, oh, yeah. Gotta, gotta figure it all out. Mm. And so how do you figure it out? You work every station. You work with good chefs. You see how they run their business. Was there one restaurant or one chef or one mentor that really did it for you, or one epiphany? I always try to get back to that moment of inception. Uh, chef Frank Leek. He was trained by Andre Soldner. Went to the CIA. Was a chef instructor at the culinary school in Hawaii. He he set me straight. He said, "Well, you either do it, or you don't do it. You either love it, or you hate it. You either show up and do it, or you don't." And and at that point, it's you got to focus and balance. What does that mean? Overwork yourself and have a a top end. Like, what can you perform at? What were you really good at doing? Were you good on on proteins, on fish, on pastries? You were, you're, you're trying to say that you took the whole rotational thing. I was good on the on the hot side. Like, I knew how to saute. When we went, when I went, when I left Hawaii, because the chefs were saying you get more experience on the mainland. Go, go somewhere. So it's either go to French Laundry, go to the Little Washington, go to the Greenbrier, go to these top places. I chose the Greenbrier. At the Greenbrier, you're cooking for... So you moved to West Virginia when? Uh, 2005. You go from Hawaii. Hawaii. Maybe the bluest state in the Union yes. to one of the reddest ones in the That's, Greenbrier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a really prestigious it is. gig, but there's no surfing there. There's no you're surfing. You're up in, in rarefied mountain air. Yes. It... it, it, it Teaches you. And again, what year was that? Two thousand five. Wow, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of cooking. What? How did you? How, what was that interview like? Uh, you're gonna move from where to cook here, Hawaii, to West Virginia. Uh, Chef Peter Timmons sat me down. He's like, you probably won't make it for the, the the three years, but we'll give you a shot. Here's your start date. I could see them saying like, now nah, here's a possum. Make me poke bowl. No man, <laughs> it wasn't. No, no. It's it's like this is an intense place. Good luck. You're comfortable doing that kind of a leap of faith there. I mean, yeah. you're, you have your, your life in a couple of suitcases. You, you up and move. Yeah, just up and move. Uh, kind of streamline your whole, your whole life for a career. And at, at the Green Bar, it was, there's nothing to do but cook and cook for 2,000 people every night and then do it again and again. And the menu changed every, every day. So at the Green Bar, the menu... And the crew had to change every day for three-day rotations. So I would cook tenderloins for 2,000 people and then scallops for 2,000 people the, ne the next day. You get good. It's, it's like the, you know, keep on the repetition, just make you better and better and better. Uh, did you have any social life to speak of going from the waves to the mountains? What, what, are, the, what are these, you know, the secret, <laughs> the secret lives of Green Buyer staff? Oh, man. What do they do at night? They, well, that was back in the early 2000s. So we, we drank a lot. We, you know, had, had some fun. Mm. We 
get together when everyone had some time off and play cornhole. That's I would, riveting. I, I would I would go to uh, I would go back to Baltimore for like the city scene, visit my parents. Mm. Uh, at this point, are you getting overtures to kind of get poached to go to different places? Is your name getting around? Uh, nope. Nope. You're cooking for, you know, you're a lo- low-level apprentice. You're the you're the scum of the earth. You're you're doing everything. But does someone aspire to become executive chef at the Greenbrier? Is that then something oh, yeah. you could parlay nationally? You could. A lot of the chefs there went to the Ritz-Carlton. They went to Palm Beach. A lot of uh, the pre- prestigious uh, golf clubs, country clubs. You get poached out right, right away. Mm. It's it's good. I mean, it's a good. Uh, you know, there's even an Olive Garden Institute in Tuscany. I kid you not. They really? They take their executive chefs and everything. It's one of the perks of the job. Holy cow! <laughs> That's way nicer. I love than... to take you on these detours. <laughs> I want to know how you got to Richmond, Virginia. Richmond. So after the Green Ride, went back to Baltimore, cooked for I think five years. You know, worked with uh, Roy Yamaguchi at at Roy's in at Harbor. Roy's, which got a lot of press in the early aughts about yeah. Hawaiian fusion cuisine oh, yeah. on the East Coast. So that was a that was a good that was a good run. Uh, worked at the Baltimore Country Club, chef de cuisine. It was fun. No, no, no food costs. Just practice and make it good. This is a real. I always wanted to. Yeah, you know, it's a word I think I missed on the SAT. Peripatetic existence. You're going from place to place to place, and you feel comfortable doing that. Oh yes, you have to. You have to adapt and cook someone else's food, and and learn wh- why you're doing it, and learn why you're doing it. You know why? Why am I? Why am I changing jobs? Why am I? You know, I have this great job that everybody wants to be the chef de cuisine or the sous chef or the executive chef. But what, why do you want more? And it, and it's knowledge. It's just wanting to cook different things. Were you clearing any sort of living vis-a-vis what you were making at Merrill or Deutsche Bank no, back in the day? Absolutely not. And you're okay with that? Yeah, I was happy. I was happy getting better and getting stronger, being more knowledgeable. Not as knowledgeable as a master chef, but I was getting the, the techniques down. And not having to read cookbooks, and that you know that's another point. It's it's when you're a young chef, you're opening cookbooks to get inspired. But when you get more experience, you just have that inspiration, and you want to create these menus that people would want to eat. It's it's pretty cool, and that happened like eight years ago. Eight years ago. Eight years ago. It's like oh, now I'm a chef. I don't have to open up a cookbook. So how did I want to know how Richmond and Virginia beckoned? What was your first um, gig here? What was the idea to come here? I was tired of living in Baltimore, and mm. and so I got an argument with the chef in in Baltimore. He kind of blackballed me. He's like, "Don't hire this guy." And I drew a circle around around Maryland because that's where my family is. They're uh, they're getting older, so I wanted to be able to get back and forth really easily. Uh, Richmond, Northern Virginia, Delaware, Philly. I looked at all the, I, I sent out my resume. I, I blasted at three in the morning. And the timing was right. The hard shell on the south side in Midlothian was looking for a chef to help open and put my application and came down. Uh, worked with the RG. They interviewed me. They put me. Richmond Restaurant Group. Richmond Restaurant yeah. Group. They, they, they put me through the paces. They tested me out. They put me online and. But why Richmond? You, I mean, it, it, it fit the requirements of proximity to your family. And proximity, cost, cost of living. Yeah, cost of living is good. There's opportunity. I, I likened it when I came down here to Russia in the 90s where there's a potential. Oh, my God. <laughs> Emerging market. Out. 
I mean, we have oligarchs here too. Yeah, we got emerging markets. So did you move during the financial crisis or right after the financial crisis? Right after the financial. So it seems like when a lot of creative destruction was in place here, you had yes. uh, things were marked down. You could go into Churchill. Yeah. No one even knew the place was called Scott's Edition. It was just a yeah. big brownfield yeah. slash super fun site uh, north of Broad Street, and now it's kind of unthinkable going back and. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people that come through the restaurant are they say to me, "This place was not." Scott's edition. This was not, a, this was industrial. This was, no one walked around Scott's edition. It was like the place you don't go. Mm. That was eight years ago. Now? You can't, there's not a free square foot. There's not a free square foot. There is lots of development happening. There is, you know, they're trying to build the infrastructure. It's getting there. It is, it's what's supposed to happen. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Ledesma, chef and owner of Perch, the uh, multiple awarded uh, restaurant, the Pacific Rim-inspired restaurant in Scott's Edition, RVA. This is his, uh, what, I lost count, seventh or eighth gig, your your, your first own gig, your first the ownership gig that you've had in Richmond. And I want to know how you kind of traverse that path. You went from various different places. Talk about hard shell within uh, Richmond Restaurant Group. There's East Coast Provisions. It's now expanded massively. There's the Daily. Uh, you went to Max's on Broad, uh, which its sister restaurant is Terrence uh, there, which I, I love. I I mean, you, you kind of bounced around and then there was the Cabana rooftop, everything. I'd see it from the RVA dine headlines is like, this man is is constantly getting poached. Like, people suddenly want him. I think there's a, uh, a level of expectations when you bring someone with a background as myself, it has to, you know, you have to make a difference. You have to cook better food. You have to train and try to teach the best techniques and the best, sanita- you know, sanitation. It's a, it's a complete package. And it either it goes either way. It's like, I love what you're doing or I hate what you're doing. And and that, and that point, it's, well, this is the parameters you gave me to for success. And then I explain it to him on my, you know, on the financial side, it's like, what is the goal? And so I have to, I have to work backwards and, and try to achieve their goals. And I, I, after a while, I get, and I get tired of cooking the same food. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, I get bored. I get bored cooking the same stuff. That's why I also move, different, move to different restaurants. Mm. From seafood to French bistro or Belgian bistro to, to Patina where it's a new American. And then it goes to East Coast where it's kind of seafood-esque, daily, very healthy, vegan, vegetarian. So it kind of like rounds me out as a as a chef, but I can only cook. I don't know, a lot. <laughs> when did you get the uh, the ownership bug kind of nagging at you? Because you know, we're going to get into it. You did something extremely ambitious. You can go online and look at the old pictures of Joy Garden and this crusty but storied 50, 55-year-old Chinese restaurant. Yeah. And what you turned it into was like almost this super expensive ski lodge type thing with expensive woods and frosted windows and yeah. the technology that you were showing me in there. I mean, that that takes a whole other entrepreneurial skill set. But build me up to that. So the, um, you know, I was a corporate executive chef for the RRG. And at a, at a certain point, it's you're getting managed to develop these concepts and then at a certain point in your career, in, in your personal life, you just want to be on your own. And so what happens is there's a, there's a value to that. And is it the money? Is it, is it building something? And, and, and again, it's I want to build something. 
I want to be able to train the way that I want to train. I want to cook the food that I want to cook. And that kind of took the process of, okay, now I have to make a decision. How am I going to do this? How many panic attacks did you have in making that decision? I have to honestly ask you because it's one thing. Okay, you're now an executive corporate chef at a thriving restaurant group yeah. here, and somebody else taking care of back office and benefits and procurement and proteins, and you can kind of snap your finger and say, "We want to go into this and do it." And but the price of that is you're you're not doing it. Uh, you're not autonomous, right? It's Correct. not an ownership thing. You still are an employee. But to get to where you want to get, where you are right now, involves an enormous leap of faith, so enormous huge. financial risk. You've <laughs> got to bring investors together. I'm telling you what you know now, but oh, yeah. a, a person to kind of have that internally, and, and I understand the risks that you took in your kind of peripatetic existence where you live out of a garment bag, yeah. you go from being a surf bum to bouncing to Baltimore, but this is a whole other game. I was, uh, I brought in the... Uh... The calculations from the capital asset pricing method, where it's risk versus reward, high risk. Wow, you're really reward. doing finance 101. You I, went CAPM on the restaurant. I went CAPM on the Can restaurant. Can you explain this for our lay listeners, CAPM? <laughs> CAPM is high risk, high reward, low risk, low reward, basic. You know, as you as you figure it all out, the time you spend for this is the opportunity of making or losing money, and that's what I basically said. I'm all in. But higher risk also entails higher risk of ruin. Yes. You get wiped out. <clears throat> well, we are in – so you have to have a, a plan. You're, what's your exit plan? So do I – you know, if it fails miserably, what is the – what is what is going to happen? And then what if you're successful? What is going to happen? So you weigh those things and then you take that leap. You do it here as a father though. I do it here as a father. Yeah. And you took this leap as a father. Yes. When did you decide to when did when did the kind of perch thing come to fruition? And I'm sure people are whispering things at you because you're a Filipino American and it's not it's not a very traversed uh cuisine area. I mean, we have Jollibee, we have a place on the yeah. south side, Wing Command. Wing Command. There are places we can go. I've always joked with you about pancet and leche flan and adobo and alo alo oh, yeah. and arsicola. And uh, it's not a common cuisine. You could find it in parts of of uh of Brooklyn, Queens, mm -hmm. obviously Los Angeles. There are little Manilas across the country. But then you also have this Hawaiian influence, and you're saying you want to keep Virginia at the same time oh, yeah. inspired. And everything that I come up with is why not? Why why can't we? What I How I see it in my mind is when you have a Filipino party, and it's all Filipinas, and you go to the buffet, and there's pancit, there's steak, there's pizza, there's... You know, there's mac and cheese, there's mac salad, there's the toron, there's the, you know, every... Pigeon eggs, duck eggs. Yeah, right? there's fried chicken, there's, it's everything. It's like Filipinos love good food. So the, you know, when you're, when you're in the Philippines, it's, it's good, but you, but you have to be careful because our stomachs aren't acclimated to the Filipino cuisine. But when we go to the parties in, in, in America, it's, it's everything because we were, we, we were so happy to be here. And to be able to have food on the table, and I think that's what the perch concept came from. It's let's develop this menu where it's kind of like a dinner party, and we're introducing you to Filipino food, but we know how to cook the other stuff too. It's pretty cool. It's it's, it's like all right, give me your inspirations. So I have a, a meeting with the the kitchen, and they you know I have a guy from England, I have a local guy from Richmond, and everyone else. And then you, you know, it's it's interesting you bring back these these old flavors from Baltimore. Whether you use Old oh, yeah. Bay, Old Bay, Hawaii, I mean, you know, Old I, Bay and Spam, Old Bay and Spam, right? Spam being a popular item at, at Jollibee, the fast food chain, which is kind of a cult, yeah, classic. Oh yeah, 
on the weekends we do spam and it it brings people that were in the military they're like we used to eat this all the time at Clark Air Base so like I know it's for you it's for you know like we I studied in Hawaii so I wanted to bring it all together so it tells a story so they're like you train in Hawaii do you have loco moco like, yes it's on Sundays do you have this and like yeah all the standards and then we try to do more Filipino foods to get get the masses acclimated to the Filipino food. And I want to take you on a little detour uh, on that for a few minutes is what is it about Filipino food? Our experience in Iran, um, in the Filipino nurses that my father worked with, and then coming to the United States, I remember just those parties at the churches. Oh, yeah. Or Christmas would be a... I remember, you know, with the Filipino nurses, Christmas would be like a month-long affair. Yeah, yeah. You'd have party after party after party. <laughs> and as a kid, I was introduced to lumpia. Yeah. Oh, Robin, do you like RC Cola? It's very big in Manila. Yeah. And then um, pancet, uh, leche plan, which I think, you know, it's the flan in the Philippines. I got to think it's like 20 pounds of sugar and 20 eggs it's and egg yolks. Yeah. It's glycemic shock. Oh, yeah. But yeah. they, there's always it was just a it was just a festive ongoing foodie type thing and yeah. I associate it with Christmas a lot. Yeah, they're I think they're the original foodies because when I was younger, Dad would go out to the to a restaurant. I can make that. I can make that better than him, and he could. He could. He can attempt, and he didn't know how he could do it. And then the the you know the Filipino nurses they just love to take care of people and and share their so every family in the Philippines has their own pancit recipe pancit right pancit, which is the rice noodles the rice the very noodle, thin rice noodles with shredded yeah so how do they cook the, how do they cut the vegetables what proteins do they use what kind of soy sauce what you know what's yeah. their what makes it maasim you know they're like oh this is very delicious mm. and and so really just tasting my aunties and my friends' aunties and just kind of like. That brings me back to, you know, Filipino parties, Christmas, um, you know, all the, the foil containers of food that just kept oh, on coming. constantly coming in. I remember yeah. those big foil things. Yeah. I was like, where do you get that? The, the Filipino potluck is just <laughs> tremendous. It is. There's a, there's a little, you know, there's a little group here, the FC, the FCAAV. They're, they're. And then the person drinking Crown Royal with RC Cola with balut. Yeah, oh, balut man. is what the uh, oh yeah the duck, pigeon egg. The, the duck. The... I think it's a duck egg. Yeah, it's the... a it's like an embryonic it's egg. Embryonic it's embryonic egg. So has, my Lolo used to. He's like, oh, you have to try this. I thought it's just a regular boiled egg, and I was like, oh my god, Lolo, there is a bird in here. Yes. You eat the, he's like, do you eat the? You have to eat the feathers and chew on the bones. Like that's just gnarly, but I'll try it. I was always the older person I remember. I was like, come here and try this with... Balot. <laughs> Balot. Balot. Yeah, it was fun. I, I mean, that's, you know, that's the Philippines. It's street vendors, street food, house cooking. You go out, for, you go out to a restaurant, never eat Philippine, Jollibee. And, you know, I want to bring that here in, in the Richmond. Good lumpia with raisins. Good lumpia with raisins. They love ra- the empanada. The empanadas. The so is it is it a, is it a crossroads cuisine of what the Spanish kingdom, Spanish and Chinese, Chinese. Food, yep, everyone that's, and all the stuff that's gone back and forth in the remittance economy. I think the Philippines is one yeah. of the largest remittance economies in terms of the diaspora sending money back. Yeah, I think everyone. You so, go on a cruise ship, or uh, a lot of the nurses across the Middle mm-hmm. East and the United States, and teachers, teachers, lots of teachers. That's their that's their gateway to get in, to our economies. So you pick this up. I'm saying the stuff that you've now carried in your, you know, we're we're you're two decades into this experiment now. 
a Baltimore kid who grew up in Los Angeles? A uh, Brooklyn kid. A Brooklyn kid. Grew up in Annapolis. Annapolis. Went to, went to work in Baltimore. Oh, wow. And what's the L.A. influence? I, I have fam- My godparents are in L.A. And so you took the Old Bay seasoning and the other things. Yeah, yeah. And, and Baltimorean stuff, crabs and the like. Oh, yeah. You picked that up and took it to Hawaii and probably before anybody was talking about po- poke. I know Roy's was a very big concept in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s. And yeah, he took that to hotels and, and yeah. various other places. And then you parlayed that back into the mountains with very traditional hotel resort cuisine. Oh, yeah. And then everything else that you carried in Richmond, from the hard shell to the daily mm-hmm. to Max's on Broad. I mean, you were responsible for the muscles at Max's on Broad? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We tested out so many muscles. And it's like there's so many variations. It's just think about the num- the numeric sequence of the muscles and the sauces you can create with you know, five or six different ingredients. And it's, it's amazing. Beer, wine, butter. Sriracha, you know, there's so many different variations. Take me to the moment where you decided I'm going to take this risk. Perch is going to happen. It's just timing. You know, I have... Where were you? What was it? What was the decision made? What was the inception of that? The inception was I met an investor and I did the short sell and kind of gave him the the 30-second broker side of it. You know, how, how beautiful it is to open a restaurant, how much risky it is. And, you know, holding, 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 and waiting. And then finally get the call to, to open a restaurant. And I was like, what? This is amazing. It's, this is like my dream. I was like, the red herring and business plans. It's all about relationships. And that's what I learned in finance. But I got, so even if you learn in finance, what does a person, suppose I have an amazing concept, and I do, by the way, if this whole journalism <laughs> thing fails, I got the best fast casual Persian concept. Holler if you, know, you want to yeah. poach me because I'm always poachable, like the biggest salmon you ever met. Um, but I, I digress like I normally do. Uh, what, what are you offering an investor in that case? You know this world because you dealt with high net worth clients and the like. Is a person looking for a name dropping stake? Are they looking for a dividend? Are they looking for equity? I think it's all, all the above. It is ownership and a successful business. That, that's what they're looking profits. And so that, you know, that's what drives all business. And we, you know, I'm a chef, artist, business person. And that's what, you know, I see it's like, this is the opportunity for us to find efficiencies in an inefficient market. So why do we have all the the nice stuff at Perch? It's because we are trying to push the envelope of efficiencies. And but rewind a little bit. When I'm making that case to a person, right? You had not you had not owned something before. You had tremendous financial acumen. You were very you were a journeyman chef who's gone through several different states, very flexible, very desired. You've gotten poached several times. And this the the RVA dine scene was becoming incredibly saturated at that point. Oh, yeah. You're telling people to take a chance on you. Do investors, restaurant investors, look at this in terms of opportunity cost? I want to take you back to your Wall Street days. Oh, yeah. It's like, well, I could put this in a 10-year. I could put this in the S&P 500. Um, there is an opportunity cost to my money. I can't just write you a million-dollar check for, for the sake of um, you know pride of place or table stakes. Right. I think it's a combination of the, you know, knowing the, the numbers and knowing and not knowing the numbers. It's... 
I think my investor is very, you know, he's really, really smart about how he wants to spend it. And I need, I needed someone to guide me and show me the way on that level of investing and, and building. You had some sort of exploratory committee, which at this point when you decided you were serious about doing this to go maybe look at some places pro forma, where would I do it? What would my menu look like? What would my comparative advantage be like? Liquor mix. Because you have to have something to say to an investor, right? Oh, yeah. You or did to... this investor guide that? We we have preliminary numbers. We do financials. We do uh, mock models of if the price point is here. So, yeah, the finance does come in and you have to know you have to work backwards and forwards and rework it so that it's it's working. So it does make sense. So that the the business is is thriving. And how do you how do you do that? You have to work the, you have to work with all the data. And that's that that's the difficult is, part. Is a is a private investor like a one forty four A type sophisticated investor looking at comparative returns to an S and P five hundred or a bond or a CD or are they in a whole different world? Because yeah, if you really want to walk out with me, this is a non correlated investment. They're investing in you. They're investing in yeah. your vision, in an underserved cuisine here, in a really up-and-coming part of, of Richmond. Yes. It's a, I, I see it as a, a high-risk, high-reward kind of investment. I look at it as like a small-cap equity fund that they're building. I see it that there's a lot of risk. If you can, if you can dial it in and scale it, then you're going to be more successful. That's, that's, what I, that's what I see. Are you allowed to tell us what you had to raise? At the very outset, this is a, it's a it's a it's a really pricey looking space for everybody else who's interested in here. The old venerable Joy Garden space in in formerly derelict Scotts Edition, yeah. right on Broad <laughs> Street, you know, and the pool hall and all that stuff has been reformed. It was apparently so crusty that you were you know you're peeling soy sauce packets off the wallpaper. <laughs> soy sauce it smell like cabbage and cigarette smoke. It costs a lot of money. So why that why that spot? Because it it had a history. You could. Uh, honestly, I just wanted a spot with parking accessibility. In Scott's edition, was with, that the deal breaker? You wouldn't go out far out west or something? Uh, not a deal breaker, but I wanted a, what I, when I looked at the space, I knew the formula, which, which I learned from the other restaurants, had to be around a certain square footage. So that's part of the formula of how do you, how do you make money in a restaurant? You have to have the right square footage. And then the accessibility factor was where is it located and curb appeal and traffic and demographics and, you know, all the things that happen around me, like, I didn't know Bingo was going to be right right next door. Bingo Beer and Brewery, right. So they- Peter they, Chang, which is Peter just a block away. Block away. So there's a, I didn't know, back then I didn't know Long Oven was a block away. Right. So, so it was a leap of faith. It's like, okay, so I think this space will be good. It's accessible. It's right off the, right off a of boulevard and there's not too much competition in the Scotts edition area. And that's how we chose Scott's edition. How did you build a margin of safety into this? There's stuff you clearly couldn't, you couldn't rescue the wallpaper as much as you wanted. <laughs> I heard you had to digitally replicate it because it was not salvageable. No, it would fall apart right in your hands when you're, when you're trying to peel it off. It's like, okay, don't touch it anymore. So anything but the bones of the building that you could use? I mean, you weren't keeping any kitchen equipment or? <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that, uh, that hood was out of, out of, uh, code. The, uh, the brick wall, I, we kind of took most of it down. We kept a little bit of it. The ceiling rafters are original. They were covered with the drop ceiling, so the the, the original ceiling is still there, and some of the some of the brick. I gotta ask you: Did this not immediately give you sticker shock and keep you up at night? Like absolutely, I was stressed out. <laughs>
and 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 we were behind on our on our build. So the four, you know, the seven to ten month build was now fourteen months, and getting permits and learning the whole process. And this was my first baby on my own. So I had to learn about all the subcontractors, learn about how to communicate through City Hall to get permits because, you know, this is a new thing for some contractors to build something so grand and big. Yeah, you didn't decide on incremental. I was shocked you had me at the soft open. And it seems like this huge kind of flying buttress wooden thing kind of jutting at you. It looks like a yeah. museum type thing. It, it, it doesn't look like corners were cut there. No, I, Dave Johannes was our, our architect. He uh-huh. did a great job. And Helen Reed was our interior designer. So they, you know, they they wanted to build something grand. I said, I don't So here's, the, here's what I don't get, Michael. You are then beholden to that nut. Whatever that cost is, you have to pay the mortgage on it. You have yes. to pay your cash flow machine. And, and you can only financial model this as much as you, you want at the end of the day. You have to you have to deal with staff. All of this is under your purview now. You yeah. are the equity owner. You have an investor. Yeah. Was there a debt element to it? There's a lot of stress element. <laughs> the the uh, the debt is is stressful. The coming up with the the formulas to open, coming up with the right management team to to run the numbers that we needed to run. I mean, it's it's it's. I think I was over my head for a little bit. I mean, it was it wasn't it wasn't pretty, but. You get it done, and you you try to structure it so that you're 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 going in the right direction in, into the black. Did you have one investor? I have one investor. All it took was one investor. All it takes. Did you have other people when they realized that Perch was in the offing in the RVA Dine coming after you offering money? Yes. But you wanted to keep it to one investor. Yes, I think that that is it's very easy to communicate with one person, and it's so fast. Like you have to make decisions so fast. Like. What do you think? Yes. What do you think? No. Okay. Let's go. Doesn't this go contrary to the efficient frontier and the capital asset yes. pricing model? <laughs> yes. Ah, touche, uh, young man. A yeah. ninja meets another ninja. Yes. You would want to take on multiple investors. You were, you would think Spread you're beholden. The risk. Well, how yeah. how comfortable were you with this person? You were okay being beholden to one investor. Yes, very comfortable. I mean, that's you have to. It's. I liken it to the the best relationship or the worst relationship. So you have to get along, have the same vision, and then and then kind of curate that and collaborate and execute. It's a it's it's, it's a dance. It's, you made this pro forma pitch for Perch to one investor, and on that on that try, this one investor said, "I will cover the whole nut." There was yeah, there was no name. <laughs> there was no there was no concept. It was I have an idea of opening a restaurant. This this can work. And I think it's it's having all of those experiences with the different restaurants and the different cuisines that I di- diversified my risk as a chef, not being one-dimensional. So I see myself as a very diversified mutual fund. By dint of cuisine? By talent? Talent, places, size of restaurant, you know, different, um, you know, just everything's different. Like I'm, I'm not like a one- one-dimensional chef. Chef, when did you open the restaurant? 2018. 2018. By then, uh, the economy was really at the service level. We were approaching full employment, and restaurateurs left and right were complaining about the paucity of good people that you could keep. There are people swinging on the vines and going to other restaurants for 4 or $5 an hour raises. Yeah, yeah. That it was vexingly hard to have people who were incented to stay and to feel ownership. And I was wondering how much you visited... Uh, your life is a kind of a underling chef journeyman, or or, or they they 
your staff uh, felt an empathy from you or you could tap into that empathy? I think that's where you have to start from the bottom and work yourself around and get your 10,000 hours. I think it's the, the level of quality of the people that you work with is dependent on the leadership. So if you're a good leader, you get good people, it, and you have to treat them right. You have to treat them with respect. And I think that's, you know, the, there is a lot of workers out there, and they can choose where they want to work. And that's, that is the beauty of this market. It's not, it's not that hard, but it is hard because you have to, everybody wants a job, but you need to find qualified people. And so we're actually, we're dancing as well. Like you're going to make, you're going to have a good, this can be a career. And that's, you know, that's what I, I don't want someone that, that's not thinking about it as a career. This is, I, I think of it as front of the house is, are my brokers. They, they, you know, they create sales and generate revenue. And my kitchen is back of the house. <clears throat> it's operations. How do we... How do we get from point A to point B without both? How did you find an operations are like a true right hand? Because um, you want you don't want to be doing all of this work. Oh no, absolutely not. You just have to find the the strengths and weaknesses of your your management team and work at, you know build a team that they're not all good at the same thing. So one's good with numbers, one's good with marketing, one's good with uh, group events. One's you know you, you can't have one person do all of it because it's too much. Was there a percentage overrun on your construction and over, over, you know, yes. you could have modeled for? Was it, was it painful? It was very painful. Um, in 2018? 2018 was very painful. It, it was, you know, change orders and, and delays on permitting and, and, and really that, you know, that has to, you have to think about it when you're taking that leap of faith. That was like, a, that was a, a, an eye-opening moment. And when we're missing deadlines, it's like, who's responsible? You're now the owner, so now you go to City Hall, and you learn all the facets and all the departments and where to get, where to start from. And you don't know where to start, so you start from the bottom, and you go to floor five, floor six, floor three. You know, it's, it's, it's you're, you're now you're connecting the dots. And I think that's what I learned building the restaurant was connecting the dots to make sure that things would hit deadlines or how do we you know, solve missed deadlines. So I, I became an expediter. So how long was the delay from your initial planned open? A lot. How many months was it? February. We were supposed to open February. Of 2018? Of 2018. And you opened in? September. And so I understand, is the meter running on a cost of capital? Yes. When something like that I mean, happens? meters and then your, your, your grace period ends and you know, you're like, oh, how can we renegotiate the, the opening and when we have to start paying rent? And so you're trying to trying to figure it all out. But all throughout and without, you know, giving up names or anything, if you don't have to, how do you keep that investor patient and in saying this is the cost of doing business? Frankly, in the town that is still in many respects, you talk to business owners who start up here, there's an enormous amount of, of red tape and there's a yeah. consistency with what you want to do. I think growth is the, the biggest, you know, factor. So I'm looking at the numbers and you can see the, how it, how it's trailing. Um, seeing deltas, that's that's a big thing. Like what's, and now, you know, if there's so the the cost of the experience is now X, and so I'm I'm figuring out how do I create more, create more revenues, more scale, more you know, more fun, more funds, so I can pay back my investor and then build another one. And look as this news hits the tape, I kid you not, as I'm looking it up, uh, Acacia Midtown is closing, uh, building is sold. 
Now that's a star. Yeah. You know that uh, it, it's very hard to be successful and consistently successful in this business, whether it's food costs or labor costs. It's a it's a tough business. You have to have a lot of energy every day, and you know he, you know I respect Chef Dale, and he's done a great job, and he's done great for Richmond, and that's you know that that is the opening for you know all of us that came to Richmond. Dale Wright, sir. Yeah, Dale Wright, sir. So that's uh, you know that you have to think about that, and how do you how do you stay solvent, right? I mean, that's you just have to push every day, find find the inefficiencies, find the efficiencies, maximize the human element, marketing, operations. And it's it's mind blowing. Like it's not for everyone. That's definitely mm. full disclosure. I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Michael Ledesma, chef and owner of Perch, veteran chef, veteran journeyman chef from Baltimore to Hawaii to West Virginia. Uh, ends up in the RVA, bounces from restaurant to restaurant to restaurant, builds a resume, and finally in 2018 opens this this castle in Scott's Edition on Broad Street where I, uh, a, a storied but uh, defunct Chinese restaurant was. Joy Garden, right? Joy Garden. Uh, the owner was Mark Ree. He, he, I invited him to the restaurant, and he's like, oh, it's very nice. It's too expensive. I said, yeah, the, the markets have changed. <laughs> like the the experience of dining is different now than back then. I mean, the the space that that the psychic space that that occupied is. I've had Richmonders tell me it was the first place they tried lo mein, something yeah. that was really exotic in the 1970s, or to try um, egg foo young, or or uh, wonton soup. Oh yeah. And to think now, I mean, when you look back, <laughs> when you step back and look at RVA Dine, we've had a we have a Bosnian restaurant. We have not far from you is uh, Little Vietnam on Horse Pen. Oh yeah. Uh, there's Cam- Cambodian restaurants here, yeah. Middle Eastern restaurants, an Afghan restaurant in oh, yeah. Carytown. We have a world class Indian restaurant in Short Pump. Oh yes, uh, pupusas. Pupusas you could get. Oh, it's like amazing. They're all tucked away. They're like, where do you want to eat? And they said, I want ethnic food. In Richmond, like, yeah, absolutely. There's a you know full key. Isn't that amazing, the dim sum you could get there? Oh, yeah. What is this infamous um, shopping center in Northern Virginia? Because you have experience there that people, it's like a tourist destination where they go, like, there's a Filipino market next to oh, yeah. a Vietnamese market. It seems like a lot of things here are morphing into that. I think so. I think the, the diversification of menus and chefs cooking different cuisines makes people want to try. And accessibility to those markets make it easier to you know, feel, touch it, smell it versus buying it on Amazon. And I think being a part of that whole market scene is is the charm of cooking. Like, I don't know what this is. And it's like, okay, this is this is for salt. Because a lot of Asian cookery, they, they use soy sauce for the salt or bagoong or, you know, whatever. Fish sauce. Fish sauce. Uh, how did you uh, uh, convince your patrons, your guests, to take a chance, take a flyer <laughs> on things like lumpia or pancit? I mean, that's... That, that, you know, when I moved to Richmond eight years ago, nine years now, it was just building that rapport with the guests cooking fried green tomatoes and pimento cheese. And now, you know, after they they were happy with the pimento cheese and the, the fried green tomatoes, I kept on pushing the, the envelope with the menu as specials. And then you get a little bit more following. And then you do cooking classes. So I was at the, the defunct uh, Southern Seasons. Uh-huh. I would teach class for about between... 20 to 40 people, and then you get a, another level of, of foodies and, and guests that will follow you to the next restaurant. You know, that's it's just building their, res, the, their respect and honoring where you are, like where they came from and 
bringing them along with your journey. It's a story. It's a, it's a, it's very, you know, here's a story of me coming to Richmond. I'm going to cook this food for now and then evolving. Will you go whole hog Filipino at that restaurant? Literally in Christmas, I'm talking about a lechon. <laughs> Will you take delivery of a whole hog oh, and actually prepare Christmas Manila lechon style? Uh, I will try. Have you done these things for, I mean, do, do people now come to you and say, bring me straight up Filipino food or is it always fusionized? No, it's, it's bring me the, the langwanisa, the, the pancit, the pancit palabok, the uh, kare kare. It is, it is, I have the, I can do it and I've done it and I'll do, I'll probably do some, some pop-ups like full Filipino menu in the mm-hmm. future. Since I have my, my, my sea legs now. And I have every all the things in place. It's easier to to do one offs. When well, you, I, this is what I want to know. And I always walk out with people on these things. Like I walk into a place like Black Hand Coffee, and I'll say to the, I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by something like, okay, if I see a sack, a five pound sack of beans, what is the perfect amount of of economic value added you can extract from that sack of beans? If you had your druthers, would it all be drip coffee? Would it be foamy, creamy, whipped? cream beverage type things? Would you do, you know, if they're espresso beans, would you do it this way? What is the highest profit thing in the store? And I get one guy says like, dude, a tea bag is the highest profit that <laughs> we have here, like the least amount of labor. Like it's kind of counterintuitive. And I always am fascinated when I meet, you know, successful restaurateurs in this town is what best moves the needle for you? Like couples coming in, you like the place being full liquor orders. Like how does it work? Well, on, on my, at the restaurant, I'm looking for a party of four, getting a, a cocktail. So this is my, my perfect dining experience. Cocktail, start, then they get an appetizer, maybe another cocktail or two bottles of wine. And, so that, and then everyone gets a different entree. And then they get a pre-dessert to pe- cleanse their palate and then a dessert and then an after-dinner drink. They're walking out with spending about $500 at that point. And... and and the reason why purchase is so nice, it's, you know, I could, this, I liken it to if you sell a hundred burgers at eight bucks, or do you want to sell a hundred ribeyes for 50? Mm. Same amount of work. You have to know how to tempt steaks, but just the perceived, you know, the value of it. How do you, how do you, you know, that's. There's a tremendous amount of CapEx in the place. And operating costs. And you show me these frosted windows in the back, like a private <laughs> chef suite, and you hit this remote control, and then the whole thing goes wrong. But that's for that's by design because the, the market needs something like that privacy for the pharmaceuticals, the lobbyists, the board you know, mm-hmm. board meetings. They need that privacy. And so that's why that room exists. Any uh, dishes that nod to its past life, the restaurant? Were you able to the bring poo-poo in platter? The poo poo platter. Oh yeah, the poo poo platter, solid. <laughs> some of the intellectual property of Joy Garden. Oh yeah, it's like oh, you got to put a poo poo platter. It's a Asian, it's a Chinese restaurant. Chef, I have to ask you about one of the big stressors now for all sorts of restaurants. You know, uh, one of your friend competitors is the Eat Restaurant Group. You know, Chris Sway and Staples, and you go into a place like Beijing on a Saturday night, which itself is kind of a. You know, that was there after Blue Goat didn't work out. And in a past life, it was Peking, you know, Dick Dew's Peking. And mm-hmm. before that, it was a Safeway. But I noticed now that in addition to having all sorts of butts in seats on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and people ordering ideally two bottles and yeah. cocktails and palate cleansers and appetizers and everything, you have the whole world of DoorDash yeah. and Uber Eats. It's a whole new level of dimensionality that if you were built to be, a, for example, a casual restaurant chain, 
you read sell-side research right now. This is an existential threat because you've built out the um, uh, the infrastructure for a sit-down restaurant. It's, it's waiter-waitress intensive, server intensive, the plates and everything. But more and more people are expecting that you can deliver anything on demand from any restaurant. Does that keep you up at night? It does. It does. When you're eating at Perch, it's the experience. And when you're eating at the, one of the eat restaurants, it's, it's the experience of going out. And I think DoorDash and all the, all the other companies are doing great getting it accessible. But I worry about the, like, how long does it, because they're all subcontractors, basically. The drivers like Uber drivers. How long does it take to get from point A to point B? And the quality deteriorates for, you know, after 12 minutes, it's like done. You know, what if it's going to be in the car for two hours and you get a bad review? So now you're not in charge because your Uber each driver or whoever messed up, got lost. You know, something falls out of the car. It's it's a. Have you engaged with any of those? Door I did. Or chop chop. I did. I just didn't. I didn't see see the the future of it for us. I, I think it was just very sporadic. Our our many changes, and it was not as successful as it should be. I think maybe if I had a more casual place that had a, a menu that stayed stay the same for the whole year, it would probably be more successful. Which leads me to my next question. Uh, are you profitable now that, at Perch? Uh, we're, we're almost there. It's, it's, it's a push. You know? The first year is the hardest, right? Right. So I'm, I'm close. Do you find that on, on evenings where you need it to be full, it is full? Is brunch going well? Brunch is uh, less than what I expected. I think the Sunday Mondays are hard. I think Friday, you know, Thursday through Friday, th- Thursday, Friday, Saturday are great. It is, you know, trying to, there's so much competition. How do you differentiate yourself from everyone else? Social media, you know, marketing, uh, advertising, guest experience, everyone's a food critic. I mean, it all comes into play, so you have to be consistent. What does work in marketing and advertising? I'm curious. <laughs> if, like, I see something on social media today as you're talking about a, um, you know, poke. It, it just looks so luscious. You shot it with a high-res camera and, you know, these pawpaws, which are like redneck mangoes yeah, on the James yeah. River. And uh, that's so unique. I just want to go and devour it, no matter the cost, no matter the weight. Is that what moves the needle for you? I think what, what moves the needle in, in our restaurant is the voice and the consistency and the story that we can tell. Like, we, wanna, we want to integrate. We don't want to be so different. We're, we're just kind of creating this this voice of perch. So you're going to come there, you're going to get something fun. You know it. It's something you're familiar with or not. And you're going to take a chance. You're going to, you're going to try this food or not. It's You can have a burger and a pizza. Or you can have a whole fish with, with you know, suka <laughs> vinegar. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty cool because my, imag- you know, my imaginary table prior to building perch was four pe- two couples, four people, where did they come from? West End across the James, uh, what would they eat? So one, it's like one steak, one vegetarian, you know, one seafood and one, you know, keto. So we have to, you know, I'm developing menus for a very diversified clientele. What's next for you? Are you going to expand potentially into fast casual? I mean, is there, is there an interest in doing that? Or are you already at max? No, like I, max I love growing. I love scaling. I love growing. I love seeing the, the puzzles, you know, if, if it's Richmond, if it's Charlottesville, if it's Northern Virginia, D.C., Baltimore. I, 
I don't, I'm not afraid of it, of growing, and I, and I, I I'm, I'm ambitious, and I want to, I want to try. Does it happen that somebody, maybe an out of towner, comes in and tries your food and is so wowed by the experience and is like, like, where, how can I invest in this? Yeah, they're like, come to, come to Dallas. They're like, okay. Dallas, really. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's everything's on the table, but you know, it really has to fit the the formula. We have to get along. It has to be very organic. I think that that's where it executes well. It's when it works. One piece of advice in closing to an aspiring, either a person career in transition who's in a crisis right now or an aspiring restaurateur, I know it's hard to reduce it down to something, but if you had to. Like the advice I gave you earlier, you could take the risk on lump sum or amortize it. Yeah. Um, really think about what makes you happy. If it's work, then it's it's work. If it's a passion, then it's work with some and and result. It doesn't feel like work. I I, I tell myself, you know, everyone, you know, twelve to fifteen, eighteen hour days is work for some people. But if it's passion, it's it's like oh, it's that's it felt like nothing. Seriously, it doesn't feel like work to you. It doesn't feel like work. It feel it's more work if I hated it, but it's 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 work, but I love it. So it's it's always a formula. How do how do I make it more efficient? There's something that happened, and then you can you can figure out the solution. And so everyone has a solution in their head what makes them happy. So that's what I I say. Just make just do what makes you happy. There's gonna be parameters, but that you know that drive will make that work easier. Any big things coming up at Perch that you'd like to plug? <laughs> I have a Valentine's Day. It's a, that's a huge day. All the two tops got a crazy cool menu. You know, I like to have fun. So every day is a, is a, you know, we'll throw the poke, we'll change the poke. Just come in for, you know, just to see what's going on back there. It's open kitchen. So give I'm there. The, give us the website, please, the address, the social media digits. <clears throat> www.perchrva.com. Phone number is 804-669-3344. I love, con- you know, it's easy to remember. <laughs> I'm there every day for the most part. I'm in the back. Just stop by and say hi. I'll give you a tour. Mike Ledesma, journeyman and chef and owner of Perch, the highly rated uh, restaurant in Scott's Edition. What Pacific Rim-inspired, Virginia-spirited. Uh, sir, you're getting great reviews, and, and people seem to love the place. And uh, uh, great for you, and, and thank you, in the honor of risk and reward. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News 88.9 on NPR.org and the trusty NPR One app, and always on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe early and often. I'm Robin Farzad. Bon appetit, and talk to you next week.